Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. For today's episode, we're going to share a recent client webinar on the current and future state of MarTech. Forrester analyst Joe Stanhope moderates the discussion with fellow analysts Rusty Warner and Lori Wisdell. Let's take a listen. So let's dive into it. Let's ease in to uh, what's been going on and let's talk about actually a recent event. Let's talk about Adobe and Marketo. What does it mean for marketers and what's next? This is, if you've been scoring at home, this is uh, a uh, acquisition that occurred earlier in the quarter. Um, Lori, why don't you tell us about your thoughts on this and, and where you think it's going? Well, it, it, it was, for all of us in the industry, it was really, really a surprising move. Um, and, um, and I think there's two things we need to think about. One is, um, what does it mean for Adobe? And then what does it mean for B2B marketers and, and Marketo's customers? But as, as far as for Adobe, um, it means that they now have the opportunity to compete with the other marketing cloud vendors um, like Oracle and Salesforce and SAP for those B2B marketing automation opportunities. Um, we think that the global market for B2B marketing automation, we forecast this uh, earlier this year, products like Marketo was $1.3 billion last year in 2017, and we're projecting that's going to grow by 20% annually through 2023. But the Marketo solution isn't isn't is just like the anchor into these B2B marketing opportunities, and, and um, then that once anchored into an account, then there's the rest of that rich Adobe uh, portfolio, that entire uh, cloud portfolio that can be you know, sold into that B2B customer. I think Lori's right. It obviously means that Adobe can now compete with the other B2B marketing automation capabilities from the other marketing cloud vendors. But I think it also increases Adobe's ability to uh, sell based on a customer experience message. They've changed their branding so that it's the Adobe Experience Cloud, which contains the marketing cloud and advertising cloud and analytics cloud. But there isn't a great deal of customer experience capability there. But because Marketo integrates with sales and service automation tools, I think that that can enrich Adobe's story. I think they can also uh, align what they're doing with Marketo with the open data initiative that they have with Microsoft and SAP, and they can also involve Marketo more with that partnership with Microsoft on Power BI, Dynamics, and, and of course, LinkedIn, which has tremendous uh, value for the B2B space. Sure. I think those, those are great insights. And, you know, I agree with all of that. I mean, clearly, um, Marketo fills a gap, right, for, for, for Adobe. You know, they now have really a name brand answer in B2B marketing automation, very strong platform and product offering, gives them the ability to compete uh, in a much more uh, solid and cohesive way with uh, some of their core marketing cloud competitors like the Oracles and Salesforces of the world. So that makes a lot of sense on paper, I think, when you think about the, uh, the amount of money involved in this transaction, surely it's gotta be about more than that. Because um, I see it as a way to get uh, you know, a complementary customer set uh, many of which are probably not already uh, Adobe clients, so there's some significant pickup there, and really that becomes uh, across that Marketo uh, customer set uh, a cross-selling opportunity. Obviously, Adobe has a very broader range 
of offerings. Now they're getting into e-commerce via Magento. They, they, of course, have all the web content management, experience management technology. They have the opportunity to sell a much broader stack into that Marketo customer base. Uh, and that's really valid. And they're going to have crossover in the, the existing Mark, uh, Adobe customers as well. So I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity uh, over the next few years to really amp up the overall value of, of the transaction. And if I can just jump in to close off this, this kind of this concept a little bit, this is the, also we want to talk about or think about what does it mean for the marketers, the B2B marketers, the Marketo customers. And it's just really, really good news for Marketo customers. The, the time that the company spent in the Vista portfolio, um, the private equity firm that, that um, had acquired them a few years ago, was probably really good for the P&L and the balance sheet, but it really wasn't very good for the product. Um, we, just, we just published our most recent wave of the B2B marketing automation platform vendors uh, in October, and in the two years since the prior wave, Marketo had clearly lost um, lost um, functionality against um, against competitors like Oracle, Eloqua, and, and Salesforce. There's this old this line that everybody's heard, and I just about um, usually applied to athletes that if you're not getting better, you're getting worse because everybody else is getting better. And I think that's what kind of happened to Marketo uh, over the last couple of years. So it's really great to see. Um, really to see that great product and that great company. Now, a strategic part of the portfolio and a company like Adobe that really is committed to delivering solutions for marketers. So it's really good for Adobe, for Marketo's customers and users as well. Fantastic. Let's move on to the next question, and this is a fun one. I want to ask each of you, what is the most underrated marketing technology component that brands should consider more that they need to be thinking about that doesn't get enough attention? Um, Rusty, let's, let's start with you. What are brands going to be thinking more about next year? Well, I'll give you what might sound like a, a selfish or self-serving answer. Uh, I think marketing resource management is one of those underrated uh, marketing uh, technology components. Uh, you know, when we talk about modern marketing and what the core responsibilities for a marketer should be, they include customer understanding, brand experience, and brand strategy. And we see a lot of investment from the brand side and also from the vendor side when it comes to data and analytics to support customer understanding. In a similar way, we see a lot of investment in channel delivery capabilities to support brand experience. But brand strategy, which if you think about it, should be the top priority, often gets left out. There's not a lot of investment by the users when they're building their MarTech ecosystems. There hasn't been as much investment from the big marketing cloud portfolio vendors. Instead, we've seen uh, a lot of independent platform vendors uh, grow and evolve and start to address marketing resource management. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more interest in this space for both B2C and B2B marketers as we move forward. And of course, MRM itself uh, contains a lot of, of different capabilities. It's financial planning and budgeting. It's collaboration and project management. It's content production and digital asset management. It's also uh, 
about the brand fulfillment and marketing fulfillment and even distributed marketing and through-channel marketing automation. So there's a lot wrapped up in MRM that I think gets talked about as performance management or distributed marketing depending on who you speak with, but it's going to get and should get a lot more attention over the coming months. So that's fascinating. So uh, MRM is an idea that uh, its its, uh, its idea has come back around uh, to, to being relevant, and it uh, certainly sounds like it's evolved a lot since, since I spent a lot of time looking at that space. I think you're right, Joe. Uh, what we've seen happen is that uh, monolithic approach to MRM where it was almost like an ERP implementation, th that's a thing of the past. Uh, the traditional solutions that were around back then, and there were only a handful, have now become cloud-based products, and they're a lot more modular in nature so that they're easier to stand up and get value from. It's much easier for different types of users to adopt them and make them a part of their operational processes. And then we've just seen a whole raft of new vendors that have entered that space. In fact, we have a lot of vendors here in Europe. I think that because uh, perhaps there have always been the uh, need to have content translated in multiple languages for multiple markets, that there are richer capabilities that we've seen evolve on this side of the Atlantic, and now those have, have matured and we're seeing them compete on the global stage. So it's a, it's a really exciting space. When I did our vendor landscape uh, last year on, on this, uh, it was very difficult to narrow down the number of vendors that we could publish just because there are so many who are competing now in this market. Wow, that's uh, that's really impressive. So, okay, big takeaway: everyone needs to go start learning about uh, MRM again for the first time. Uh, let me lob in my entry for most underrated uh, capability. Uh, I'm going to put in a plug for identity resolution, and of course, I'm biased too. Uh, it's an area that I cover. Uh, but what's interesting about identity resolution um, is one: it's not necessarily purely a technology. But what's interesting is it's similar to marketing resource management in that it's not necessarily new. Marketers have been doing identity resolution uh, really since the beginning of time. It's always been important to know your customer. In fact, it's uh, probably one of the most underlying uh, fundamental assumptions uh, that every marketer makes when they're going to undertake a campaign or some kind of tactic or program is that that customer, that, that consumer, that, that business uh, is going to be addressable in some way. And we've seen a huge surge of interest in this in the last year or two because even though brands uh, have been working on identity for a long time, they've done it many times in fragmented and siloed ways. And now that marketers are on the hook to deliver much more cohesive customer experiences that span time or longitudinal, uh, span touch points, having that uh, identity graph, uh, attaching that to a customer profile has really become mission critical uh, and the critical part of, of making the technology and all these programs work because when brands uh, look at their goals, if they want to do better personalization, better analytics, attribution, frequency management, they start peeling back that onion to decide how they're going to make those programs work. Oftentimes, it's not a pure technology challenge. It really comes down to their ability to identify their customers in the right way so that they conduct those activities. So uh, identity resolution has actually become my number one inquiry topic with Forrester clients uh, over like, the last 18 months, uh, which is a, a fascinating factoid. And so 
Uh, I'm really advocating we've published research. Susan Bedell and I just published a now tackle of vendor landscape on this topic uh, earlier this quarter. We're going to continue covering it next year, but we just think it's so critical for brands to be planning ahead, thinking strategically about how you identify your customers, build that identity graph so that you can conduct the insights and the engagement activities uh, that are in your goals for, for 2019. Lori, what have you got for us? Well, for B2B marketers, both of the topics or the areas that you guys mentioned are, are important, and particularly, Joe, the, the data integration challenges and the customer profile issues. Um, really, I, I think probably those are is, is one of my highest areas of inquiry as well. But I, but I think the real sleeper in the B2B MarTech stack is actually functionality that addresses marketing through channels. Um, according to the World Trade Organization, 70% of all of the world's products reach their end customer through some sort of channel, a reseller, a distributor, a dealer. And it's interesting because <clears throat> in past years, a lot of that um, channel has been passive and it's been sort of a pull, you know, really it's been pulled through by the brand's advertising or by, you know, the brand demand generation. But now with the digital buyer, the channel is becoming a digital marketer uh, much more aggressively than in the past. And if that happens in an ungoverned way, it can really lead to what I call bad marketing at scale. And so there really I think that um, companies that sell through a channel, B to B to X, really need to think about how are they controlling, governing, supporting the marketing of their channel partners. So Forrester, we, we have a um, – We've given a name to the category of software uh, that, that will help you automate that channel marketing control, govern that channel marketing. We, we call it through channel marketing automation. And uh, my colleague Jay McBain covers that area and has published a, recently published a, a wave analysis of the vendors in that area. Um, and it's, you know, really my recommend is that, you know, if you do do sell your product, if you're one of those 70% of companies that or, or, or products that go through a channel, is to investigate this area. Um, not only do you have, you know, can you control or shut down the risk of that bad marketing at scale, um, you can really ensure um, much better brand governance. Russell, you were just talking about the importance of, of brand, and you can really ensure the governance of that uh, brand governance through that channel. And while you're doing that, I think it'd be great to look at where uh, through channel marketing automation and MRM meet and overlap because there's a lot of work being done by the, the more pure play distributed marketing automation vendors and the MRM vendors that start to look at this from a governance perspective as well as a budgeting and planning perspective and a performance measurement perspective. So I think, uh, Lori, your category and my category to watch actually have a lot in common. Yeah, I definitely think there's going to have to be some product convergence in this area. Um, the, the, the mainstream B2B marketing automation vendors uh, have, are, have completely, I think, completely ignored it uh, in terms of functionality, and it's just, you know, it, it just needs to be integrated into the overall stack a lot more tightly. I mean, I think a lot of, I agree with you, a lot of these um, underrated capabilities have been, in many ways, um, ignored. Right, uh, both sometimes on the vendor and on, on the buy side, right, which is how they become kind of uh, shunted off to the side and they don't get as much uh, of the press, right, uh, for being a new shiny thing. Um, but these are some pretty core concepts, you know, effective planning and, and brand management, uh, effective channel management, effective, uh, you know, identification of your customers. I and mean, these are the most marketing 101 topics that 
aren't getting enough attention. That's what I think is so interesting about it. These fundamental ideas that we're actually talking about people spending more time on. All right. Next question, and this actually uh, kind of when we talk about things like channels, which are, you know, in some ways uh, globally relevant because all kinds of brands and companies, B2B and B2C, sell through channels as well. Let's talk about uh, what we see happening in these markets. Um, the question comes up, uh, I think, for all of us pretty, pretty regularly, are B2B and B2C practices converging, and is that a good thing, do you think? Let's start with Rusty on this one. Well, I, I don't think I'd say they're converging as much as I'd say that there are some overlapping use cases. Uh, if I'm a B2C marketer, but I'm in a considered purchase environment, or I have human salespeople or agents that are going to deal with the customers, I might need some functionality that we typically think of more on the B2B side, like lead management or integration with my sales automation tools. Uh, on the other hand, if I'm in a B2B environment, I might require functionality that is more typically uh, associated with B2C just because we see consumerization of the B2B buyer and the expectations that we all have as consumers come with us when we go to the office and we're seeing that those are reflected in uh, what a B2B buyer uh, would expect when dealing with an organization selling to that person uh, on the B2B side. Uh, I'll give you a good example. Just uh, recently, I was involved in a procurement exercise with a luxury retail brand here in Europe. And when they were looking at solutions, they were looking at some that we would categorize as B2C, but they also looked at some of the vendors that Lori covers in our B2B marketing automation evaluation because they knew that in a luxury environment where some of the products are going to cost tens of thousands of euros, that these are are going to be cases where they will need to nurture a lead and that there will be a human involved in that process and they can't just do it with digital marketing alone. You know, I think I agree with you that I don't know if I would describe it as, as convergence. Um, perhaps there's more, more overlap. I mean, uh, on, on the surface, I think it is tempting to make uh, a call like it's converging because, um, you know, B2B marketing, in, in my view, uh, is getting a lot more sophisticated, is, is scaling up. When you look at some of the really, really large firms, I think, you know, and, and Lord, you can, you can correct me here, but that what they're doing starts to look like the size and the shape of what we see in large-scale business-to-consumer marketing for enterprises. And so, and as the data requirements ramp up, um, you know, a lot of those, those things and those foundational elements start to feel very, very similar. But I think, nevertheless, a lot of the requirements are always going to be fundamentally different. Um, it is a different kind of data. It's a different data taxonomy. Some of the tactics are fundamentally different. You have elements like uh, ABM, uh, account-based marketing, that, that are fundamentally different between the two. So I think there may be some increasing overlap, but I don't think you're going to see a, a, maybe a true convergence between the two. But maybe the upside here is there's going to be more of an opportunity to, to share and, and to cross-pollinate between the two, which possibly is a really interesting outcome. Maybe we have a lot to learn from each other as these both progress. Uh, what are you seeing, Laura? Uh, well, I think the common core in what both of you have just said is that it's really all about the use cases. And <clears throat> what I 
speak with customers um, about their MarTech stack decisions, I always recommend that they start their analysis or their thinking by creating an inventory of all the, the use cases for customer engagement, and then break down those use cases into the functionality that's required to support them. And I, I know that sounds like common sense, and I think most people think they're doing that when they say, I need campaign management and I need lead nurturing. But like the capabilities you need for campaign management and lead management are really, really different. If you're selling a high volume of with a short buying cycle through an inside sales force versus if you're selling a low volume of a highly sophisticated solution through a field sales force. And when you really start with that inventory of use cases, then you um, that approach really helps you understand the nuances that you need in terms of the functionality in those broader categories of lead nurturing and campaign management. So I think that the the convergence is is a, is a is a red herring in a way. Um, it, it really doesn't matter. It is there are similar use cases, and Rusty, that example was excellent. Uh, and we see plenty of examples where there's, there's the considered purchase uh, that the kind of B2B functionality is better for. So but I think that it's we're going what's going to happen in this kind of convergence of ideas, the crossover cross-pollination, Joe, you were mentioning, is that marketers will start taking a more thoughtful approach to how the technology is actually going to be used to deliver that, that, that customer experience. Yeah, I think as Lori says, we're going to see more of that, and I would encourage people to take Lori's advice and and really look at the use cases. Uh, I earlier today was with LinkedIn, who were doing a marketing and sales connect event here in London, and I was one of their their. Uh, uh, guest speakers to talk about what that means and what it means for technology investments. And we talked a great deal with a lot of the organizations that were there about this consumerization of the B2B buyer. And there is still that considered purchase. And of course, uh, there is you know, perhaps a longer buying cycle because of that. But I think in a lot of ways, we're seeing the need to uh, market to more anonymous people on the B2B side because they will start to uh, research a brand using digital channels or social channels long before they interact with a human. I think that uh, the fact that we see less loyalty on the consumer side is something that is creeping in on the B2B side. Uh, I, I have friends in sales who would argue it's, it's always been there, uh, that they have to earn the customer's business every day. But I think we're, we're seeing some of those consumer expectations show up. Uh, Lori and I have joked before that uh, we, we wish we could just get rid of the B2B and B2C labels and just work on the same team and just talk to people about their use case requirements and advise them on the appropriate technology without getting caught up on the labels. Great. Good stuff. Moving on, I want to talk about one of the, uh, the most important terms that we've all been hearing relentlessly all year long. We've got to talk about it. We're almost legally and morally obligated now to talk about artificial intelligence in any discussion of marketing technology. Um, so it's a popular topic. I hear about it every day. Our clients hear about it every day. Um, and I think there's a reason, a good reason, for why it's so important. Um, because the way artificial intelligence works, uh, the kinds of problems that AI is useful uh, in being applied to, 
track very closely to the world of marketing. AI is great in situations that are complex, iterative, and data rich. And you know what? That sounds a lot like marketing to me. So there's a, a ton of potential there. Um, but we've got to accept that, you know, one, when we talk about artificial intelligence, uh, I think that, one, it's not a standalone product. AI is not a product in and of itself. AI is something that will be embedded in the applications and tools that we already use, uh, and it makes those tools better. It is not an outcome in and of itself. And when we start to accept that, we can start looking at where AI applications are available today and support marketers. Um, and we look forward and we see some tremendously powerful uh, applications coming down the pipe and helping in things like margin automation, helping with, with developing and deploying actual creative and content. Um, but a lot of the use cases I see, at least in the B2C marketing tech stack today, are far more uh, focused uh, and, and bite-sized. Um, and those are ready for credit. I would say that using applying artificial intelligence, machine learning technology, uh, for example, to elements such as personalization, right, as a method to use more, more data to apply to personalization, to have better micro-targeting and personalization to get down, hopefully to an, even an individual level of targeting and personalization is something that artificial intelligence supports. We're also seeing some exciting use cases, um, and sometimes they feel like you're recreating existing mousetraps, but they really hint at the long-term potential, things like being able to surface insights, uh, do discovery of segmentation and targeting strategies, uh, supporting, of course, on the ad tech side, supporting ad buys, right, through, through DSPs. Um, even optimizing campaigns in certain ways, such as uh, messaging send time optimization is a pretty popular application of machine learning and AI technology in today's uh, campaign management tools. So we're starting to see the emergence of these, what I would call very specific use cases. And what I would encourage uh, all of our listeners to do uh, in 2019 is to start exploring those use cases. Um, even if you don't necessarily uh, need them urgently, I think the sooner you start learning about artificial intelligence, understanding how it applies to your own customer journeys, your own use cases, learning how to validate the applicability, um, starting to adapt some of your own marketing operations and processes to leverage artificial intelligence, the better off you'll be because when some of the more powerful use cases start coming down the line in the next one, two, three, four years, your organization's gonna be ready to start adopting those. Rusty, why don't you weigh in on this now? Uh, where do you see AI fitting in? Well, I think all the advice you just gave, Joe, is is spot on and really looking at the use cases and, and thinking about where can artificial intelligence add value. Uh, I think there are just two additional points I would make. One is uh, to do with terminology itself. When I talk to marketers and they say artificial intelligence, what they really mean is machine learning. And I think machine learning does offer uh, some, some great benefits to marketing, but you have to keep in mind that there are many different types of artificial intelligence, not just machine learning, but deep learning or neural networks or natural language processing or natural language generation, what's happening with facial recognition and voice recognition or image 
and video analysis on the content marketing side. Lots of, of different types of technology and different algorithms that can be used for different use cases. So don't just think of AI as machine learning would be my first point. And then secondly, I, I think that when it comes to outbound campaign management, you know, Joe outlined you know, some of the uh, ways that AI is being embedded for uh, personalization or optimizing an audience or uh, trying to uh, make sure that I'm, I'm optimizing the appropriate timing for a campaign. And those are becoming more and more straightforward. Where I think it's more complex, to Joe's point, is those environments where it's more of a customer experience environment, where there's a lot more scale, uh, there's a lot more velocity to the data that needs to be analyzed, uh, perhaps it needs to be integrated with other functions. Uh, for example, if you're a large bank and you want to align what you're doing with next best offer for mortgages and credit cards, you need to take into consideration what the uh, people in your bank uh, on the business technology side have already developed for fraud and credit and risk and anti-money laundering and build some of that sophistication into the algorithms that you're going to use for managing your offers. That might be very different than what you'd see in a retail or e-commerce setting where I don't exactly need to know your credit score to offer you a white shirt versus a blue shirt. You know, so the use cases in the environments will dictate how sophisticated you need to be and how quickly you need to think about bringing that sophistication into the environment. So I think that you both raised the issue that you need to start thinking about um, and, and, and making sure you're kind of you're understanding how this can reshape your marketing processes. And so from our, for our B2B marketers, at least, most of the ones I speak to are in no position to begin to take advantage of that power, the power of AI. And they're not in a position to take advantage of that because they don't really understand their customers. They don't understand their customers, the, the journey that their customers are on. They aren't building marketing programs to engage buyers on those journeys. And they don't have the content to personalize some of the things you can do with, with even the AI tools that are out there now. So yeah, I'd say definitely start educating yourself and becoming aware of and understanding the difference between uh, machine learning and AI, all very important. But also, in order to be able to take advantage of that, you need to like immediately stop doing product-oriented campaigns and really start making this pivot that we keep talking about to customer centricity, to thinking about the outcomes customers are trying to achieve, the journeys they're on, and making sure that you're, you're delivering, you're developing a marketing program, content strategy that will allow you to take advantage of AI to really, basically, to really to really personalize that, that customer-driven engagement. So it's, um, there's the technology, but never has the technology been set up to deliver less value than AI uh, if the underlying processes and approach to customer engagement don't change. I completely agree that uh, the excitement around AI and the, the focus on the um, kind of the analytics and algorithmic nature of it um, overshadows in almost every case of people I speak with with kind of the operational impact, um, and that gets um, almost ignored, right? So the potential to, to change um, processes uh, in the creative element of marketing uh, and uh, applying artificial intelligence, even in an analytics uh, kind of use case. So 
actually want to go to talking about customer data platforms. We would be remiss if we didn't hit this topic this morning or afternoon. Uh, it's coming up a lot in the marketplace. Uh, we've got some questions here about it actually during the webinar. So let's talk about this, and I'll kick us off. Certainly CDPs have become a popular topic, uh, especially with CDPs. Um, and I think the interest in them is legitimate. It's predicated on the really, really um, important idea that managing customer data is hard and it's getting harder. Uh, marketers don't want to curate data, they want to activate it. And they need, like I mentioned with identity resolution, they need a steady supply of granular, complete, accurate data to supply their insights and engagement strategies. But without that fuel, but even the best technology is not going to help them. But as marketing has expanded, become more progressive, uh, more devices, more data, uh, more requirements, you know, handling that data, getting it where it needs to be in a timely fashion has become harder. And unfortunately, a lot of the technology solutions in the market have historically really kind of ignored that market, or that market need, right? They've focused a lot more on the application side and not so much on the data foundation side. And so CDPs uh, have shown up on the scene, and I think, they're really targeting uh, fixing this gap in, in the marketing technology uh, remit. Um, and, and that's, I think, really useful. And I think they actually deserve quite a bit of credit for that. Now, we define uh, CDPs at Forrester, uh, both across B2B and B2C topics, uh, as a system that centralizes customer data from multiple sources and makes it available to systems of insight and engagement. It's a fairly low-level um, definition because there's a really broad array of what CDPs do. There isn't a really cohesive definition of them today. Um, many of them uh, do different things from one another. It's, it can be a little bit risky to look at CDPs as a singular market because some of them focus on measurement, some of them focus really on uh, more like marketing automation, some of them are more about orchestration uh, and personalization, and then you have some that are really just about being a data foundation. So there's a lot of different flavors of CDP out there, and I think that's what makes that market a little bit confusing. Uh, uh, for people, for, for clients and buyers to, to wade into. From an enterprise B2C marketing perspective, uh, and we just published research about this uh, earlier this quarter, is there's a lot of promise in CDPs, but for enterprise marketers in B2C today, a lot of the CDP functionality is, is relatively immature, right, in, in terms of data handling, in terms of identity resolution, in terms of the targeting and personalization functionality. So what we're, we're talking to our clients about is be aware of your use cases like anything else, because they may apply and work very well within the construct of a CDP, um, but very rarely do we see it replacing existing marketing technology components. It's good for filling in certain gaps around moving data, maybe uh, orchestrating a little bit more cohesively, supplying data to a customer insights team. Um, but to really be very specific about your use cases and understanding uh, how mature the functionality you require will be to serve those use cases, and just making sure uh, before you buy that any kind of CDP can can support that. Um, and we're looking forward over the next you know year or two to see how CDPs mature um, and, and how that plays out, or, or if this becomes more of a, a mid-market solution, or even settles into being more of a, a B2B solution. Uh, Lori, what what does your team see uh, with CDPs on the B2B side? Yeah, I think it might be, and I think this might be one of those areas where the, the technology, the data, data structures and requirements, and the taxonomies, and, and just the, the overall kind of needs in the MarTech stack are very different between B2B and B2C. Um, in, the, in the seven years I've been at Forrester and following the, the B2B MarTech um, vendors, I have just been stunned at how little attention has been paid to data uh, integration, data quality, um, and 
and and because you know anybody who's been around technology for any amount of time knows it all begins with the data. So um, so so. And particularly now as we're making this transition to customer-obsessed marketing, it just mandates the ability to gather, analyze, and manage a broad range of data types and sources. Um, our B2B marketers have, you know, low confidence um, in both the quality of their data and their ability to manage data well. And that now there's this truly dizzying array of new B2B-specific data, <clears throat> data management solutions and data products themselves. And, um, we're definitely seeing that the data itself is becoming kind of a commodity, and as that becomes as it becomes a commodity, the vendors are morphing more into um, they're really becoming more really stepping into this data management platform. So um, we're, we're keeping a close eye on it. I think I think we might in the B two B space think it has more potential or hope or you know potential for value and might emerge as a a solid category, maybe more so than than will happen in the B two C space. But um, it's um, it it definitely either needs to become a much stronger component of an overall marketing cloud strategy. Uh, and if it does by those marketing cloud vendors, um, then that might solve the problem. But there are so many data sources, and so I think uh, that the this is a real chance that there is a need for, and there will be a category that is an independent um, um, data management platform. Great. What do you, what do you see from a, uh, especially a data management, the overall data management strategy perspective? Yeah, I think Lori was starting to hit on it there at the end of what she was saying about the, the B2B space. If you're a large enterprise and you're trying to become customer-led and insights-driven in the way you go to market, you're going to need a really solid customer data management strategy. And I want to emphasize that word strategy because I don't think at the enterprise level you're going to solve the problem with a single platform. I'd expect that you'll need to integrate data from multiple sources. That might involve a CDP or even more than one CDP. It's going to involve other uh, databases that might uh, uh, be already in existence in the enterprise or that you are building for other parts of the business outside of marketing. And it's also going to include second and third party data sources like a DMP. So I think that the CDP is an important part of this overall customer data management strategy, but it's not likely to be the single platform solution that we hear some of the vendors promising. I couldn't agree more. It might be just just interjected, but it might be what Joe said before about just uh, size the the size of the enterprise. In a large enterprise, I think all the data complexity you, you mentioned is going to mean it's unlikely that you know one single CDP, maybe it's a federated set of CDPs or any number of solutions. In smaller and mid-sized enterprises, perhaps it can be a more viable solution. Yeah, I would agree with that too, Lori. And I, I think yeah. we see some CDPs who do take that holistic approach for a smaller organization or even perhaps a small enterprise organization. Uh, I, I think those are, are few and far between though, unfortunately. I, I see a lot more CDP vendors who are addressing a certain type of data or data from certain sources but not taking that holistic approach. But there are some out there who I think might be more of a single platform solution 
that you know in itself could could be, you know, represent that strategy I mentioned. I agree with all those things. I think really kind of a, a mid-market type solution is a place where I think CDPs could settle in very, very nicely and really provide meaningful progress to um, those kinds of marketers. Okay, we're at the top of the hour here. We could probably keep talking for two or three hours. It's been really a treat to uh, Rusty and Lori to spend the time speaking with you. I learned a lot, actually. Lori and Rusty, thank you so much. Uh, maybe we should do this again sometime because it feels like we've got a lot to talk about. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Thank you, Joe, and thanks, Lori. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>